Our second Bible reading is Genesis chapter 13, verses 2 through 18, and you can find that on page 10 in the service program. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. There he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'd be grateful if you could keep that page open so we can all continue looking at those verses during the sermon. Let's now bow our heads and pray for God's help. Heavenly Father, in Matthew chapter 4, your son Jesus says that mankind does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. That makes us hungry for your word, which gives real life. Please feed us with your word this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, I'd like to start the sermon by picking out just one verse from that long passage. Verse 10. And I'll read that verse again now. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before 
the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot thought he had found paradise. He saw a, a large expanse of land that looked like the garden of the Lord. In other words, it looked like Eden, like paradise. But the writer gives us a hint in that same verse, verse 10, that all that glitters is not gold. What seems like paradise won't bring the satisfaction Lot is hoping for. At the end of the verse, the writer says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The writer includes that note because without it, anyone familiar with the terrain described in verse 10 would be scratching their head in confusion because by the time Genesis was written, the area described in verse 10 was a wasteland. It wasn't well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord. So the writer of Genesis has to explain this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That devastating act of judgment destroyed all the vegetation of the area, turning fruitful land into a salt waste. But that brief geographical explainer at the end of verse 10 also gives readers a heads up on what the future holds for Lot. Storm clouds are gathering over his paradise. Today's passage invites us to compare Lot with Abraham. It interweaves their storylines. First, we see things from Abraham's perspective, verses 2 through 4, then from Lot's perspective, verses 5 and 6, then from Abraham's perspective, verses 8 and 9, then from Lot's perspective, verses 10 and 11, then back to Abraham in verses 14 through 18. It's like a tennis match. And that structure, Abraham, Lot, Abraham, Lot, Abraham, invites us to compare their different approaches to life in this world. There's a passage in John chapter 18 that compares Jesus and Peter in a similar way, and the story of Martha and Mary in Luke chapter 10 is another one that encourages us to observe two different people and learn from the comparison. So for the rest of the sermon, we're going to look first at Lot and then at Abraham. What we'll find is that Lot chooses paradise now, while Abraham chooses paradise later. There's much that we can learn by meditating on those two different choices. Let's begin then with Lot, Abraham's nephew. Whenever we hear about Lot, we must keep in mind that he was a believer. In 2 Peter chapter 2 in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter calls Lot righteous Lot. He describes him as that righteous man. And he speaks of Lot's righteous soul. Three times in the space of two verses, Peter describes Lot as righteous. And in the Bible, when someone is righteous, that means they trust in God's saving word and they reject wrongdoing. So we should think of Lot as a saved believer. And yet he's a believer who makes bad choices. Today's passage reveals the first misstep that Lot takes, and it's a big one. The background to Lot's misstep is the friction between his household and Abraham's household. Please look down with me to verses 5 through 7. And Lot, who went with Abraham, 
also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. It's rather sad to read about that strife between the two sets of herdsmen. But the writer of Genesis doesn't blame either of the two households. Verse 6 says the land could not support both of them dwelling together. Last week we heard about a famine in the land. Perhaps the land is failing them again. Or perhaps the issue isn't so much the land itself as the people living in it. At the end of verse 7, the writer says at that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. The point might be that the Canaanites and Perizzites are claiming all the best pasture land for themselves. Whatever the explanation might be, the land isn't meeting the needs of these two households, and that is causing tension and strife between them. Abraham comes up with a solution. In verses 8 and 9, he says to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. That's a generous offer. Abraham is giving Lot first dibs. Now, the land of Canaan is roughly the same as the land of modern-day Israel. And if you look at a map of Israel you can see that the land Abraham is talking about is long and thin north to south, rather like Manhattan. Abraham and Lot are facing east at this point in time. We can tell that from verses 10 and 11. So when Abraham says, if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, he's saying, if you had north, remember they're facing east, so he's saying, if you head north, take the left hand, then I will go right, south, and then when he says, if you take the right hand, then I will take the left, he's saying, if you head south, I will go north. Abraham assumes that one of them will go northward and the other one southward, because the promised land is long and thin. Look at what happens in verses 10 and 11. Lot chooses neither the north nor the south. He heads east. Let's look down again, please, at those verses, verses 10 and 11. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Now, if you're a fan of Manhattan's Lower East Side, you might be wondering what the problem is here. What's wrong with Lot going east? Why does he need to choose the whole of the north or the whole of the south? The problem is that heading east actually takes him out of the Promised Land. God had called Abraham to Canaan. Canaan was the promised land. 
Yet verse 12 makes it clear that by heading east, Lot has crossed over the border of Canaan into unpromised land. Verse 12 says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And then right away, we get another hint of trouble ahead, another pointer to storm clouds on the horizon. Verse 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And if you pair that verse, verse 13, with the sentence at the end of verse 10, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, you can see what the writer of Genesis is doing. We are being primed as readers to expect future disaster for Lot. It's like a scene in the movie A Quiet Place, the first A Quiet Place, where the audience sees a laundry bag catch a nail in a wooden staircase so that its sharp point is pulled up, ready to be stepped on. You just know what's going to happen at some point in the movie. People have described that nail as the scariest thing in the whole movie, and it's a monster movie. Towards the end of the movie, Emily Blunt's character, who is heavily pregnant, walks down the stairs toward the nail, and she's not wearing shoes. I'll say no more. But that's the kind of thing that's going on here in Genesis chapter 13. The wickedness of the region is like an exposed nail, and Lot is heading barefoot right towards it. Lot may not have known that the people of Sodom were such great sinners. He certainly didn't know that judgment was coming on Sodom and Gomorrah, but he did know that Canaan, the land he was leaving, was the promised land. He'd been around Abraham, his uncle, long enough to pick up that information. God had promised to give the land of Canaan to Abraham's offspring, and he promised that Abraham's offspring would become a great nation and bless the world, all of which meant that Canaan would be the distribution center for God's global blessing. Lot knows all that. He knows Canaan is central to God's purposes. And so Canaan definitely won't be destroyed. But Lot wants paradise now. He only has eyes for the paradise he can see straight ahead of him. And so he goes there. He goes east. He prioritizes paradise now over the promises of God. Genesis 13 and the nail scene in A Quiet Place have the same sense of impending disaster. Disaster ahead. But one difference is that Emily Blunt's character isn't at fault for walking barefoot down the stairs toward the nail, whereas Lot is at fault for walking into unpromised land. He trusted his eyes and desires more than God's word, God's promises. He wanted paradise now, and so he walked by sight instead of by faith. Lot wasn't giving up on God, but he was deprioritizing God. 
And as a result, as we'll see in a few weeks' time, Lot becomes like the person described in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15 in the New Testament, which says of a believer, he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Or as another translation says, he himself will be saved, but like someone escaping from flames. Lot is that kind of believer. He's saved, but he leaves no fruitful spiritual legacy behind him. Unlike Abraham, Lot leaves no lasting contribution to benefit God's people. He's saved, but only like someone escaping from flames. We live in a different period of salvation history. But Lot's misstep is one that Christians can also make. I've witnessed Christians making it. We must learn to prioritize God over our visions of paradise now. If you're making a major life choice, like Lot in verse 11, don't be bedazzled by earthly glory, the glitter of this world. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 33. Pray for the divine insight you need. Ask a range of Christian friends, young and old, for their Bible-based advice. Pursue what is best in God's sight, which may be different to the paradise you see right in front of you. God sees storm clouds on the horizon that we don't always see. So prioritize him and his promises. Walk by faith, not by sight. It's time for us to turn from Lot to Abraham. If Lot demonstrates a believer walking by sight instead of by faith, it's the opposite with Abraham. Lot drifts from God, Abraham draws near to him. Now, if you heard last week's sermon, verse 2 may remind you of Abraham's dark times in Egypt. Verse 2 says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. Why was he so rich? It was because he had falsely told Pharaoh that Sarah, his wife, was his sister. And Pharaoh had taken Sarah into his royal residence to become his wife. Meanwhile, Pharaoh lavished costly gifts on Abraham, the man he thought was his new brother-in-law. Through God's intervention, Abraham and Sarah were able to get away from Pharaoh's court and return to the promised land. Abraham needed to relearn how to walk by faith, and that's what happens in verses 3 and 4. Let's take a look at those verses. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. It must have been so refreshing for Abraham to go back to the beginning and recapture the original vision. It's as if he sings the song that Phoebe sang for us at the start of the service. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Nought be all else to me save that thou art. Be thou my wisdom 
and thou my true word, I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. That's the kind of hymn Abraham sang as he worshipped God at the altar between Bethel and Ai. Perhaps you've come here today after an Egypt period in your life. You're conscious of your sin and you want to recapture your vision of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. One way to do that is to remember your own testimony, to go back to the beginning as Abraham did. Abraham went back to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, we're told in verse 3. He worshipped God where he had made an altar at the first, we're told in verse 4. We can do something similar. We can mentally travel back in time to those first steps we took following Jesus. We had good reasons for coming to Christ. And revisiting those early days can be very refreshing spiritually. If you've always been a Christian, but you feel you need to recapture your vision for following Christ, well, revisit a time in your life when you were especially committed to him. Ask him to help you go back to that beginning and recapture your vision for following him. With his vision refreshed, Abraham handles the strife between his household and Lot's household, as we've seen, with generosity and uh, wisdom. And after the two households have separated, Abraham hears from God once again. Please look down with me to verse 14, and I'll read from there. The Lord said to Abraham, to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. God isn't just restating the land and offspring promises that he has already made to Abraham. No, he's developing those promises here, enriching them. He tells Abraham that the land of Canaan will belong to him as well as to his offspring. That's new. God also says the land will be theirs forever. That forever is also new. And God also develops the offspring promise by saying that Abraham will have so many descendants that they will be as uncountable as the dust of the earth. Now those are promises to do with the future. Abraham knew he, he wouldn't see them fulfilled himself before he died. He knew he would die before his descendants had become a great nation. And as we heard in our first Bible reading from Hebrews 11, he was looking forward to inheriting a, a better country, a heavenly version of Canaan, fit for God himself. Abraham believed those promises about the future and drew comfort from 
those future promises. Faith doesn't need paradise now. It thrives on paradise still to come. In Betsy's book, Seasons of Waiting, which I ought to quote from more often, (laughs) she gives an example of the comfort that comes from looking forward to good things in the future. She says this in the book, I had some friends who bought a house that needed extensive renovation. While they waited for the work to be completed, they lived in an apartment. They didn't spend their months in the apartment complaining about how small and inadequate it was for their family. They knew they would soon move into their dream house. The knowledge of the home that awaited them made the months they spent in cramped quarters easy to endure. They are a parable of how we should wait. Fixing our eyes on the home that is to come will help us thrive in this world that is not our home. End quote. Now that doesn't mean that it's wrong to relish life here and now. If God blesses you with a taste of Eden, a Caribbean holiday perhaps, well, enjoy it and be thankful. Treat it as a foretaste of the better world that is coming. That seems to be the message of verses 17 and 18. God says to Abraham, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Why did God want Abraham to walk the length and breadth of the land? Surely it was because there were good features of the land that God knew would stir up anticipation in Abraham's heart for the still better things to come. There will be times in your life when you are tempted to seek out an earthly paradise like Lot, even though doing so will mean deprioritizing God. You will face that temptation. Perhaps that's a temptation for you right now. But remember Lot, who walked towards what looked like the Garden of Eden, only to discover later that he had, as it were, walked barefoot towards a step with a nail sticking out of it. And let's also remember Jesus, the only person who has ever lived in this world who truly knows what paradise is like. He had only ever experienced the paradise and glory of heaven. But he came down into this fallen world with its nails that pin feet to wood. He willingly, lovingly received the nails of the cross for our sake, taking the punishment we deserved in our place so that everyone who believes would enter into the true garden of God and dwell there forever. Jesus, more than anyone, shows us that faith doesn't need paradise now. It thrives 
on paradise still to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your Son Jesus' willingness to leave paradise to help us here in this fallen world. We thank you that he took the nails that pinned his limbs to wood for our sake, that we might be spared the punishment we deserve. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to trust your word, to believe your promises about the future. And in light of those promises, Heavenly Father, we pray that we would seek you. We pray that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, trusting in you for your provision of all that we need. Help us, Heavenly Father, not to plunge into what looks like paradise when doing so means deprioritizing you. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. For Jesus' sake, amen.